Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. The first brand that you remember making an impact on you. I'm ready for this question because I, I, I know you're going to ask this. So it is Sesame Street. And I loved Sesame Street. And as I think back on it, um, you know, it, it was a creative, you know, stimulus and, and obviously educational, but the way that they, you know, had fun with learning and, and they stimulated you in ways that were just so different and, you know, eye-opening. And I, I was just emotionally bonded with that um, right from the get-go. I, I, was, I grew up in Milwaukee. Um, and, uh, we, Susan, the, one of the characters on the show was coming on a mall tour. I was so excited. Like, I gotta go see Susan, <laughs> you know, like this was like seeing Elvis, right? For me. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it. But the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Mark Hans Richer. And if you are interested in home building, home renovation, interior design, trucks, motorcycles, and marketing, you are going to love this discussion. Mark Hans is the Chief Marketing Officer, Chief Innovation Officer, and General Manager of the Consumer Connected Channel at Fortune Brands Home and Security. That is one long title. Forget fitting that on a business card. You might not be familiar with a corporate brand, but I am sure you know many of their customer-facing brands. Masterlock, Moan, Victoria & Albert, Shaw, Perrin & Row, SentrySafe, Master Brand Cabinets, and on and on. This conversation was recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic. Here is my wide-ranging discussion with Mark Hans Richard. Mark Hans, welcome to the CMO Podcast. Thank you, Jim. I'm so looking forward to this. And I want you to know that I am a current customer of yours. Is that right? My wife and I are restoring a 1929 beach house in Fabulous. Coronado, California, where one of the founding members of the Kingston Trio grew up in the house. So it's got a musical kind of heritage. And we've purchased a bunch of your brands. Can awesome. you guess any that we might have purchased to put into a 1929 beach house? Uh, I'm going to guess a Roll, Perrin and Row, maybe a Shaw's Sink. You're three for three. Um, You're good. I'm hoping also Moen, maybe. You put I don't think we there. did Moen. All right. All right. But the first three we did. We maybe had the a most Victorian amazing, Albert Tub, perhaps? Um, I don't think you so. You need one. Okay, all right. We'll talk about yeah. why. <laughs> the Shaw sink is incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh my god, it's an amazing story too, and uh, a big the, price point. Well, it's handmade. Yeah, it's. it's I mean, you can you, tell. You go to the, you go to the factory in England, which is where they're still made. Heavy fire clay, same we place they've that. been making them since the be, you know beginning of the twentieth century, uh, and and they are truly heavy, and they are truly handmade and hand uh, finished. Um, matter of fact, when you go there, they'll give you like a, a finishing tool, like this really beautiful long metal uh, strip to sort of. So I'm in London next week. Where are they in England? Where's oh, they're the in um, outside. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the the exact. They're they're about three or four hours outside of London. Okay, so you're, right. you're another need, trip. You're going to work on that. Another yeah, trip, but uh, yeah. You're now uh, get into your Fortune Brands role in more depth in a few minutes, but I want you to start with this is a five billion dollar company. Yep. You've been there about three years. Yep. 
and you're a B2B and a B2C yes. company, which yes. is unusual. Yes. And you have a phenomenal number of brands. I mean, yes, do you even know how many brands. you have? No, I don't think. I No, we don't know. But you have lots, right? <laughs> lots and lots. Dozens, yes. hundreds. Yes, we've got a several dozen cabinet brands on their own. Just cabinets Just alone. Just cabinets, yeah. And then Master Lock um, and uh, the Global Plumbing Group, where we have Moen, which is our biggest brand and, and fast-growing brand, uh, House of Roll. Uh, some of the brands we just talked about earlier in this podcast. So it's actually quite a dynamic company. Uh, a lot of really interesting thing, things going on. The, the home space is very interesting. Uh, you're right about the B2B and B2C. There, there's, a, there's an interesting uh, marketing challenge in mm-hmm. all that. Um, but it's, it's, it's exciting. And, you know, I focus really on, on Moen and the House of Roll almost entirely. And, uh, and Moen is just so much fun. It's incredible. And you talk about purpose a so lot. So why do you focus on those two? Where you have well, dozens of others you could focus on. Uh, that was that's what I was hired to do. Is focus. Mm-hmm. It's it's the biggest or the fastest growing part of the business, the most profitable part of the business. So that's where we're spending most of our brand time. Um, I haven't, but I have been involved in a couple other parts of the business as we've been trying to do a few things here and there. But for the most part, I focus on mowing and house roll. Is there anything we could learn uh, as a general audience about what's growing in your portfolio and what's not? It's kind of an indicator of what's happening in society because yeah. you're in home, interior design. Yeah renovation, yep. you know, yeah, your, no, your, it, your life, right? You're part of life. It, it, absolutely. You know, when you're, when you're in the home, you are, you are having a brand experiences every minute with people. Um, some of them are sort of um, thoughtless, unfortunately. So, you know, for Moen, as an example, uh, the idea that, you know, we make plumbing is, is not really a, you know, a, a big idea. The idea that we're creating water experiences and helping people enjoy their water experiences or maybe even preserving or conserving their water better uh, without them feeling bad about it, is a pretty huge opportunity and challenge. Um, we uh, we believe like in 10 years that we can take uh, a trillion gallons of water uh, just out of the system, That's just from being purpose. used. Uh, and, and we think it's very doable. Matter of fact, it might be more than that. Um, you know, we're going to take 350 million um, pounds of uh, plastic out of the oceans and, and use it in our packaging. So, so these kinds of things, when you think about it being about water and, and what kind of transformative experiences you can bring through our scale, because we're the number one share player in that space and our innovation, which we're sort of establishing, it's in my job title as well. Um, it, it's pretty exciting and pretty fun. Uh, and, and, and there is meaning in the home uh, experience, uh, a deep emotional meaning. And if you can create more of that, it, it's, it's good for business too. Now, I want to back up a little bit, uh, and we'll come back to Fortune Brands later, but when I first met you, you were CMO of Harley-Davidson. All right. And I think you were the first CMO, and you had an eight-year right. run there. Yep. And you told me a hilarious story, and it was something around your 100th anniversary, and you were planning a concert for your community. Right. Could you share this story with our audience? Because I think there's a really interesting lesson in there. Sure, uh, I can. I, I can't share it with firsthand experience because I wasn't there at the time. It was before um, I became CMO. Um, but it is unfortunately uh, maybe a little sort of legendary within Harley circles um, as probably a lesson around just really understanding the the uh, sort of soul of your of your customer base and and maybe not setting up false expectations that then can't be delivered. Um, and, and again, I, I think that uh, in retrospect, it's important not to think of this as, as something that anyone did wrong or intended to do wrong or, or anyone, you know, was, you know, in any way sort of, you know, just <laughs> creating a they violation. Intent, of, yeah, right? we it, all yeah of course, yeah. great intent. Um, but what, what basically happened is there was a um, 100th anniversary of Harley-Davidson, big deal. Um, Harley, you know, we celebrate those anniversaries every five years. And, and I've got my own stories of, of doing a cross promotion with Pope Francis for the 110th anniversary. That's in, a good one Rome, too. Which was also good. Um, but at the hundredth, we, um, the, the team at the time set up this idea that there was going to be this really big concert at the end of it in Milwaukee where Harley is based and they just weren't going to tell anybody about who it was going to be. So they, they had done this sort of, you know, worldwide tour of all these great artists that have already, you know, played on behalf of Harley. And so the imaginations were running wild. Who's it going to be? And, and they weren't telling anybody. They're keeping it entirely a secret. And um, building up to this really, really hot moment, which is great. Usually for a marketer, that's a great thing. You know, build up the anticipation, you know, get your customer focused and, you know, really, you know, that that's great. Um, the, the problem became when the person that they originally uh, contracted to perform uh, backed out only a few weeks beforehand. And I think that is maybe a cautionary tale too, is when you're dealing with 
personalities, artists, whatever, that this can happen. Sure. <laughs> and so you better have a backup plan. Um, and in this case, unfortunately, there wasn't really a backup plan for that level of artist that decided to back out. Uh, and I'm not going to drag that person's name through the mud, but um, it was unfortunate. Uh, so they got another really, really famous artist uh, that was a huge get for you know any other uh, use. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the concert came and uh, all the fans were, you know, a couple hundred thousand people oh, are in Milwaukee for this celebration. You know, they come here from everywhere and, uh, you know, it's ladies and gentlemen, you know, please welcome Elton John. And, um, that just wasn't the type of artist that that community was, you know, really expecting. wasn't popular with that audience per se and wasn't expecting it. And some people thought it was fine. Some people stayed and thought it was a great concert, uh, but a lot of people turned around and left because they felt Ouch. like they had been seriously let down. So again, I had, I, uh, I wasn't there at the time and the people that were there at the time, I think, um, you know, really, um, you know, th- this is such a long story. It's 20 years ago now at this point. So, yeah, but it is, I guess it is a cautionary tale, as you say, about, uh, you know. If you're going to create high expectations. Building up expectations and delivering on them and, and then having a backup plan if, if you're dealing on that level of, you know, sure. sort of creativity. Sure. Now, before, um, there's a great story of Harley Davidson. We're going to talk a little bit more about Harley Davidson in terms of a legacy brand and the challenges with that, which it sounds like you're interested in. You're writing about that, mm-hmm. you know, in your in your current life. You're a history major at Northwestern. You went into advertising for eight years with some pretty right. amazing firms. You went to General Motors for nine years, and it looks like while you were there, you earned your MBA mm-hmm. at Michigan Ross. That's right. How was that experience? Would you recommend it? Would you do it again? Getting an MBA while you have a demanding job, um, tough. Yeah, I would recommend it. It, w- it was great because you're applying what you're learning in real time. So the learnings sink in a little bit more it's less academic and more real so you're you're learning something at night or on the weekends and then you oftentimes find yourself surprised that you're now confronted (laughs) with something you just read about in a business case is now kind of in front of you in some in some shade and uh, so i found that really while a lot of work um really fulfilling and uh, the program is great. Uh, Michigan Ross is a great school and uh, great people. My son's there now. Oh, it's He's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just great, great academics and, um, you know, and, and a holistic type of program. So they really look at it from all angles of business, including, you know, social and cultural and, um, you know, and obviously, you know, profitability. But um, it's, it was a great program. I would, I would highly recommend if, if someone can stretch their life to, to do both work and, and school. It's a, it's a, good, it's a good combination. You went from GM after the MBA to eight years mm-hmm. in Harley. Right. Then you consulted on your own and now Fortune Brands, Home and Security. Yeah. You worked on some challenging brands. I did. Chevy, Pontiac, yeah. GMC, Harley. Yeah. Really interesting. What's your learning for our listeners who are working on legacy brands mm-hmm. and trying to respect their past but bring a new energy, prepare for the future? Yeah. How did this you- is basically what I do. I mean, I think if there's anything that I've maybe been more successful at, you know, this is it. You, you hit on it. And I would include Moen in that as well. Because sure. Moen is a another legacy uh, historical American brand uh, in Ohio. And I've uh, been around for 80 years. And it's the market share leader. But, um, you know, we, we are taking a turn towards a significant uh, growth uh, curve in the business because we've refocused it in ways that, you know, it really wasn't thinking about itself in the past. So just to draw a thread through all that, um, you know, the, the one that actually was the, the most <laughs> um, in need of a significant, I guess, rescuing, if you want to put it that way, is it was GMC. Um, in 2000, GMC uh, was about to be shut down. And, um, the, uh, the argument internally was that why do we, why are we spending this money on this separate brand? We should just be giving that volume to Chevy and just selling in the Chevy Silverados. And I just come from Chevy and launching the Silverado, um, having, you know, been at GM a couple of years at that point. And I, I got promoted to be the, you know, the guy who's running advertising for GMC and working with a bunch of brand managers as well. And we come in together as a team, but, uh, the senior management felt like GMC thing wasn't working. Uh, they'd given it a shot and they'd given it new product and it, it just wasn't responding as a business. And so there was a pretty strong, uh, push to let's just synergize these things and make them Chevy's. Those are selling. Um, it so sounds we, like a good strategy. It, it, yeah, it's not an un, unreasonable strategy. Um, 
but I was just put into the job for GMC. So now my job was to <laughs> figure mm-hmm. out how to make sure. this work for GMC. Wasn't a good strategy for you. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and so we were kind of dropped into the deep end of the pool there. And uh, and uh, my boss was a great person uh, who uh, was really passionate. And she was actually the boss over both GMC and Pontiac. And um, we basically said, we got about eight weeks to figure this out. And so we uh, worked really hard with Low Lintos here in New York and uh, came up with the campaign, uh, We Are Professional Grade, which is still a campaign today, 20 years later. Um, I think the longest running campaign in automotive at this point, because, you know, Toyota's gone other places, Ford's gone other places. And uh, the end of the story is after we basically came up with that campaign, tested it, validated, presented it to vice presidents of marketing at General Motors. And they said, okay, I think maybe this can work. They gave a little more time to work. It started working right away. And now it's the second biggest division of General Motors. Um, it's, it was billions of dollars <laughs> that, they, that they've made uh, by, by keeping that division. And ha- you know, our team having had a huge role in helping make that happen is a really proud moment. Now, how do you do it, I guess, is the question. And to me, these turnaround situations, especially when you're under duress, you have very little time to figure it out. Um, you have to really sharpen the objective. Like, what exactly are we trying to achieve? Um, you have to sharpen the target. Who Who is that objective meant to be focused on? And those are kind of mother's milk for marketing. But in these turnarounds, it can sometimes be confusing because you've tried all these things and people aren't sure anymore what the objective should be or who, what the target should be. Or maybe it's very sort of broadside of the barn, you know, just grow or something like that. And that's usually not very helpful. But then the thing I think that I maybe bring to the party a little differently is I really focus on under-leveraged assets. Um, This is a big part of how you can change things fast because more often than not, there are things underneath the business that just haven't been picked up and levered better to, to succeed against those objectives, against those people. It just got in the confusion of the chaos. It just kind of got put aside and, um, and if you pick those things up, you can start that march towards change and transformation a little faster than you might be able if, to if you uh, decided to go hire a new agency and, you know, do another year of research. And by that time, you know, you're dead. So you don't have that time. So you got to start with what you've got to work with, work on the under-leveraged assets. It also helps change management inside an organization because then it's less scary for people. They see oh, this is change, but it's change within something that I know. And that enables you to buy a little faith with, with those folks who have maybe been there for a long time and, and maybe don't love the idea of change so much. Um, and, and it gets them to lean in on it and see themselves in the change and see how they can contribute to it, which is a big part of, of transformation in a company. Um, so whether, great lessons, was, by the way. So, so whether it was GMC or, or, or Pontiac or, or, and, and actually Moen is maybe the best example, um, great company, 80 years old, market leader, um, but, but, a, a a business that was focused on making plumbing fixtures and hasn't, hadn't yet thought of itself as providing water experiences. When you think about the scale of their market share and you put it into the idea of providing water experiences, now all of a sudden things get interesting. You know, water moving around in the home hasn't changed like in 2000 years. It's, it's, it's like the Romans, it's still valves and pipes. It really hasn't changed radically. Until this very moment, uh, internet, you know, plugging water into the internet changes everything. So now you can control it. You can, you can conserve it. You can measure it. You can understand it. You can, there's, there's a million things you can do with it now that just hasn't been brought forward. So when you flip the script a bit from, I'm just going to make fixtures and things, but I'm going to think about water as an, almost as a network inside the home. Like there's water running through my home in a network, just like the internet is a network. Um, but how do I work with that? What do I do with that? How do I understand it? Um, how do I enjoy it more? And uh, through our innovation, our scale, we're, we're bringing that forward. And it has been so much fun. I'm, I'm having the best time of my life. It's so it's it's fun. Now on Moen, you, you're, you have innovation as well as marketing. Yeah, right. So that must make this more powerful because you can affect the product portfolio. Yeah. So this is another one of my uh, marketing things is, you know, for me, marketing is four P's. It, it, I think a lot of CMOs get stuck sort of being the one P person. You know, you work on promotions, you do ad campaigns and they don't get as much um, connection to the other three P's, which is frustrating. And it's not that they don't want to, it's just the organization might not just be set up that way. And uh, one thing I was really attracted to in this job was the, the official title is Chief Marketing Innovation Officer. Um, but it's really a 4P marketing job. So um, I actually have more engineers on my team than I have marketers. 
uh, and we have industrial design on my team and we're starting up the innovation practice and of course, you know, global brand marketing. So we have an opportunity working with the rest of the organization to really have a big impact on, on what we can do, what we can be, you know, setting bold goals like the trillion gallons of water that we think we can save in 10 years. Um, you know, those come from having more of the ingredients to cook with, so to speak, as a marketer. And that always motivates me. And I think, um, you know, as marketers look for exciting opportunities, whether it's a, a brand or an industry that they may or may not be excited about, you should always look for how many of those P's can I kind of get my hands on or at least significantly influence. It doesn't all have to report to you. Um, but that's a big part of, of, of doing the job well. And I think one of the reasons why, um, you know, I enjoy marketing so much is, is when you can get that kind of impact, you can do amazing things for a business and, and for the consumers too. Uh, I, I, I've told so many young people that the, the, the function in any company that has the most potential for transformation is marketing. Agreed. And when you throw innovation under, it's even more powerful. Yeah. Agreed. Because you're outward looking, you're looking at demand, you're looking at society, you're looking at a culture, you're looking at trends, you're looking at customers, people. Yes. And, uh, and it's where it all comes together. Yes, exactly. And, and, you know, and take it, yeah, take you know, it and run th with it. this is, this is yeah. it. I think, I think lots of times marketers get put in a little bit in a box and, you know, here's the job description and, you know, there's political forces at work and that, that's reality. Um, but you know, marketers can bring so much to the table that, that maybe you aren't being asked for, but man, just <laughs> decide what needs to happen and go, go figure yeah. it out. So going back to the legacy brand, I love your model of look at under leveraged assets, you know, what are your, what's your target? What's your objective? Be razor sharp and that be fast, be agile. Be very fast. Yes. As you look at your experience with these brands, including Mo and what you're doing now, I, I want you to tell tell our listeners, what are you most proud of and what has been your biggest flop? Mm in trying to bring energy into legacy brands. I know the, I know the biggest flop. <laughs> it was, our, our listeners love it, to it hear was, about the yeah, flops. It was, it was at Harley. And, um, and I'll tell you that it's something that'll sound like it shouldn't have been a flop because it was all based on uh, one of our favorite things to talk about is the uh, age of personalization and how, you know, everyone wants to have a very unique experience on their own terms with every brand and every product. And so um, we kind of took that and run with it at Harley. And this is also connected to product development as well. So we created a program, uh, which we called HD1, which was basically doing factory customization. So you could order a Harley and you could change the wheels, the seats, the bars, the, you know, the engine finish, anything that was really hard to do aftermarket, you could actually direct us to do it inside the factory where it was much more cost effective to do and better for you. You get like the bike exactly as you want it. And, and the only thing, the only downside is you have to wait maybe three weeks for it. So three weeks to get a bike that you really love and you'll be spending less money in the aftermarket to sort of make it exactly as you want it. So it's Harley, it's personalization, it's freedom, it's all the things that you'd expect. Sounds good and so why far. why wouldn't that, why wouldn't you do that? And we figured out how to do it in the factory and, and, and that's an amazing accomplishment that the team, you know, figured out. How do you take that kind of variability and, and activate it inside the factory environment? It's amazing work by, by everybody to try to bring this thing to life. And there was like serious belief in this this as an opportunity for the business. Well, what, what we found is that even though we, um, it was very highly desired, we made more money because people put more options on the bikes. Uh, the dealers made more money because they got more options on the bikes. Um, and we figured out the complexity so we could make it cost effectively. Um, it, it collapsed in on itself. And the reason why it did is we had a disconnect and we talked about the four P's, we had a disconnect in the place P. And what we didn't understand is that the, the dealers were buying motorcycles from Harley to resell them and they were on their floors and they didn't really want to necessarily risk that a person who was saying they were going to wait three weeks for a motorcycle may decide to cancel the order in week two once, you know, their significant other decided to <laughs> tell yeah. them that, Hey, motorcycle's not for you, Jim. Um, and, and then they've experienced this. This is real for them because it's not a, it's not a sort of fake fear. It's a real fear. So they were less incentivized to sell these things. So if someone were to come in and say, Hey, I want this, here's exactly how I want it. I did it on the internet and this is what I want. Um, the dealer was like, well, I can give you that. It's pretty close to that. And here it is right here. And you can, walk right out, out with it, it yeah. today mm -hmm. and which is of course the incentive that that we set up for them so again it wasn't that they did anything wrong it was just we, we had the incentives misaligned um so 
even though there were positive incentives all around, the, there was a critical failure incentive at the end of the day, which uh, which we did not think enough about. Um, and uh, so some dealers did very well with it, but but a lot of dealers just didn't want to participate in the program. And, and it was because we weren't setting up the... the uh, so you ended it. So it ended. Yeah. yeah. Um, we were, we had plans to expand it. Um, we got to two different bikes, um, and, and it did not continue. Um, but, but again, a, a very, very interesting, uh, lesson about really all four P's and thinking through, you can nail three of the four, but that's still only 75% chance of success. You got to get them all. Um, what about your greatest, uh, what are you most proud of? I expect that I will be most proud of what we're doing at Mo on 1% because you focus on purpose and I've had a lot of things that my teams and I have been able to work on that have been notable successes and, and awards and all those kinds of things. But, um, you know, I think the purpose that we're um, bringing to the Moen brand and, and how we think we will leave this when we're all done, because it's a journey. It, it takes time. I mean, we're doing partnership. You, you've written books about partnerships. I mean, we've got two great partners right now, like startups, Silicon Valley startups, one in San Francisco, one in L.A., uh, one uh, called Nebia that brings an atomized water technology into showers. So you can sort of get twice the shower coverage and use half the water. Oh, and we just that. launched this this year. It's called Nebia by Bowen. Um, it's actually in a Kickstarter campaign now, and we're bringing it into uh, into retail in a, in about a month. Uh, and then a company called Flow, which is a, a leak detection technology that is really a brain for the water in your home. So you put this on your main, and through algorithms, it'll read your all of your water usage in your home, and you'll know what's going on. And then if something happens bad, that let's say you're – in France or somewhere and you have a leak somewhere behind a wall, it will measure down to a drop a minute anywhere in your home. And if it's a real bad water event, it'll shut the whole water system down and prevent you from having kind of leak leak uh, events, which, which is amazing. And there's a trillion gallons of water every year wasted just on leaks alone in the United States. And you think about the leverage on these things. And these are things that people just don't think about, but it's huge. So it when Sounds you, like I should get both of those. Y- you should. And so, so should all of your audience. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. What is the purpose of Mo and how are you thinking about it now? Transforming experiences of water in the home. It's all about transforming um, water experiences. And, and that means also enjoying them more. So, you know, we're not saying, hey, you, you can only save, you, you can also enjoy it more at the same time. We want both. It's like a, it's like a Tesla. Yeah. Okay. It's electric, but it also is a sexy car and it goes fast. We want both of those that's things. And, um, and that's what we're working hard through our scale and innovation to bring. And because of our scale, we can have real impacts. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's the ability to lever a, a sort of an underleveraged asset in, in society that's in the home. I mean, we probably have 50 million users in the United States just through our historical market share leadership and working with builders and others. I mean, that's 50 million touch points every day that we're just not thinking of it that way and thinking of the scale of that. And, and so I think when we're done, um, if, if I'm lucky enough to be able to continue to do this with our team, um, we'll have left quite a legacy behind uh, and done some really important things. How do you know with that purpose of transforming the water experience in the home, which has lots of angles to it, right? Yes. It's it environmental, does. it's it's pleasure, yep. it's cleansing, all of these things. Yes. How do you know you're making progress? I mean, how do you measure that? Yeah. And how are you how are you assured that making progress against that is growing your business? Yeah. Well, early indications are pretty good. So last year we not only, and this is a marketer's dream, we not only raised prices, we also took market share at the same time. So well done. That's, Congratulations. that's good. We were very proud of that. Uh, our brand is the most recognized, uh, the highest purchase consideration, the highest share, and the highest loyalty repurchase intent. And we also have an 86% net promoter score in our service center. 
So all those indications are telling us there's something going on. Those are all trends that have been increasing the last two years. So we're we're very happy with the current indications. As far as water experiences, you know, it's it's um, you know you get a lot of anecdotal stuff, obviously, um, but we can measure certain things. I mentioned the trillion gallons of water that we think is absolutely measurable, and we will be able to do that um, as we continue to add in you know more technologies into the play into play. Um, but but there is a certain joy to water that you have to also measure. And and so we do that, obviously, with our research. It's harder to pick up on, you know, over time. We'll we'll do that. Um, but we want to make sure that when you get out of that shower, you, you didn't just save the 50% of water, but you also felt like you had like a spa-like experience and it was really enjoyable. So right now it's more anecdotal and more sort of, you know, um, one-to-one. But over time, as the brand continues to grow and we scale these things, I think the market will decide and we'll vote with its dollars and we'll win. I want to get a little bit more personal about your current job. It's sure. an interesting one, right? You're chief marketing officer, chief innovation officer, and also general manager of the Consumer Connected mm-hmm. Channel. If you had to describe to me your job in a headline, what would it be? Um, transformation. Even better than a headline, one yeah, word. Transformation. So if transformation is the essence of your job, what do you do every day? <laughs> I mean, if, if I trailed you for a day or a week, and I had to put your time into a pie yeah, chart. Yeah. What would what would that look like? Yeah. Well, as I said, one of the things I love about this job is that it's so multifaceted. You know, getting to work with you know product development uh, and engineering and thinking about the future. You know, three to five or even ten years out. Uh, working with partners like Nebia and Flow in you know in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, it, it's a pretty dynamic job. Of course, you know the normal marketing things that that anyone would do in in a in a job like that, and um, so it's really about imagining the future and delivering the present, and um, you have to do both simultaneously. You know, if you're an innovation person, you can't just wake up in the morning only thinking about the future. You have to think about what's going on in the present that'll help you enable that future and maybe just extend or bridge to that future. If you're a marketing person, um, and and one of my least favorite terms in marketing is performance marketing. Um, I, I really don't like that term because it makes it sound like marketing, normal marketing it's isn't not about performance. <laughs> you know, like there's this stuff that really works and this other stuff that doesn't work. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. It, it might be a function of when it works, but it, it should all work. Um, and, and so I, I obviously work on more short-term impacts with our teams and we work on really long-term impacts. So you would find me, um, you know, obsessing about stuff we're trying to build five years from now talking about future partners that we'd like to work with to help us advance that journey, maybe more than we could do develop internally. Um, you know, meeting with people who are really excited about something they just, they just discovered um, in a, in a, in a water uh, technology that, that we were pursuing maybe infiltration or something. Um, and uh, you know, and then of course, you know, meeting on you know, what were the sales yesterday and, mm-hmm. and uh, what, what kind of, what was our net promoter score in the service center service also is in our team. Um, you know, we had a, we had a, a consumer complaint the other day who was, you know, kind of chasing us around about something that they were upset about. And, you know, we had to jump on that and make sure that person's well taken care of. So it's, it's a dynamic job, but that's what keeps it so much fun. And, um, how much do you travel? I, I travel a fair amount. Um, we just had our sales, uh, national sales meeting for Moen and House Roll Down in Tampa earlier this week. Um, our second biggest market and our fastest growing market is China. Um, it is it is growing double digits year over year over year. Um, it's going great. Um, you know, with our partners in San Francisco and LA and other places, you know, I, I'm meeting with them often. Um, and so I, I travel a lot. It's a big marketplace. You mentioned all the B2B connections and, and of course, B2C is more so usually the focus of, of a job like, like mine, uh, but there's a lot of partners that you have to work with and customers, um, you know, the Home Depots and Lowe's and Ferguson's and others of the world that, um, you know, you have to attend to and, and understand what they're, you know, trying to do. And so it's, it's a lot of relationship management. It's a lot of travel, but again, it's really, it's really energizing. I'm really enjoying it. You talked about Nebbia and Flow, the startups you're working mm-hmm. with. Uh, how have they helped you and your cultural journey yeah. at Fortune Brands? Yeah. I have found so many legacy companies learn so much from yeah. how startups work. Yes. So what lessons have you brought from them back into the, your 
your culture. Yeah, I mean, well, you've written a book about it, right? There's a, there's a, you got your finger on the pulse of something here that I think is not, oh, it doesn't always go well. I think cultural alignment is a big part of it and you have to choose your partners well. They have to choose us well, we have to choose them well. And there's that dance when you're first talking, you know, you, do you share the same objectives, same visions? Do you approach work similarly? Not, not in a way to say that, you know, one is slow and one is fast, but do you care about similar things? Do you treat people in similar ways? Um, you know, if if you had a, a small startup that was full of really humanistic people and they were trying to partner with a company that was very type A and really just, you know, didn't care about that stuff, it, that would be a tough, even if business-wise it made all the sense in the world, it, it probably wouldn't work out so well. Um, so we've chosen our partners very well and I think they've chosen us well. Because when we did these first sort of dating uh, experiences, when you're trying to feel each other out a bit and, and understand, you know, what are you about? What are we about? And does that come together? Um, we, we've chosen really well. So those two partnerships have been extraordinary. What they have taught us, um, obviously, there's a little more agility going on in a startup, as you'd expect. Um, we are bringing uh, expertise and scale to them that they could never get to as quickly as they as they would with us. Um, but we're also bringing our own innovation to it. So we co-designed this Nebia by Moen uh, shower that I mentioned to you. Um, and we, it was a co-development and it took some of their water atomization technology, our industrial design team, um, you know, coming together, our engineering teams. And, and we've created an incredible product that is just going to be so exciting in the marketplace. So um, I don't know that they're more agile or less agile. I, I think it's really more about the cultures coming together in a common mission. And, and being excited about it. And then when that happens, a lot of really good things uh, take place. You have a team, a marketing team, and you've had many teams in your career. Teams. You yeah. a lot of teams. And you have a lot of teams right now. As you look at your business going forward as a marketer in a multi-brand company, what are the most important capabilities that you're building in your marketing team that mm -hmm. they don't have today? Mm -hmm. Well, we... We have great capabilities on our marketing team. And I think in the last three years, we've- done What are the most important ones today? And well, what do you think you need you to know, if you go, if you go back to a, a, our MMM models and stuff, it'll just, it, it's just blinking at you every day about social and how powerful it is. And we all know that, um, but, the, but it just keeps going. Um, and I believe in a, in a sort of a media mix. I mean, I, I'm not all in on any particular media. I still believe in some of the old school media, like newspapers when, when it's useful or radio. I mean, I don't think there's, there's never really been a dead medium other than maybe the telegram. Um, so if, depending on the, on the, mm -hmm. on the objective, you, any of them could be good. And, and certainly in a mix they're they're even stronger. But we've had to get a lot sharper at understanding the, you know, the social media world, um, content development, obviously. Um, and we brought a lot of that in-house. You know, we were, we were sort of outsourcing that, uh, but it became so important to our relationship with our consumers that we really needed to understand it better and, and also just control the, the data flows and things. So that's been a huge uh, increase uh, of education and capability inside our, our team. Um, and in engineering... You know, we've we've traditionally at, at Moen uh, and House World had a lot of mechanical engineers. You know, it was about sure. fixtures, and now we need people who can do electrical and digital. Um, you know, we're going to be controlling water experiences through an app. Uh, it's a network in your home, and you need to be able to control it in a very easy way. Well, that's a whole different level of thinking than um, than what we've had in the past. So, and we've tried to do this organically. You know, as people retire. You know, that mechanical engineer maybe turns into an electrical or, or some sort of digital type of role. Um, so it's gone pretty nice. Uh, in that way. And the partnerships help us advance that without having to do any kind of really huge tear-ups. Um, but, but we have added an innovation team that we've just built, all kinds of capabilities there that, that we didn't have. We didn't have an innovation team before. Um, we've, uh, we've hired a really, uh, a whole- Is that integrated into your team or it is, is it separate remote? No, it's, no. it's, in, it's mm -hmm. in my team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, honestly, there's probably- not too many skills we haven't touched. What do you, what do you, you talked about what you've insourced because of the yes. speed you need and you've built those schools. What, what do you still look to the outside for? Do you look to the outside for design, for planning, for creative ideas? I mean, where do you still well, find value always, from yeah, outside? We're always looking for partners. inspiration, you know, um, anywhere you can find it. Obviously, we have agency partners that we're very happy to work with and have been great. Um, we work with Havas Chicago. It's been our, our agency for the last few years, and, and they've really brought a lot of great things to the table. Um, and I'm, again, as a, as a 
CMO, been in these jobs. I've never really been a big fan of just kind of making your first move, fire the agency and go get a new one. I, I just think that's a huge waste of time. Uh, usually it's because the agency didn't maybe get the best direction or the, you know, focusing more on that objective and the target. And it, it was really maybe more the client that needed to sharpen its focus a little bit before. Now, sometimes it, it is the agency's issue, but let's start with- it's at least 50-50. Yeah, right? let's yeah. start with a little bit of looking at yourself before you, you just blame the agency. And um, so I, I still highly value agency relationships and having those folks, you know, thinking about uh, your, your brand and, and bringing things forward that you couldn't possibly have imagined on your own. Um, and uh, and yet I, I'm pretty demanding about that. You know, I want to know that they're really- taking ownership of the brand. You know, this is not just a functional relationship where they're, you know, sort of punching a clock. Um, they, they need to be waking up, thinking about it and, and wondering how it can be pushed just as much as any of our, our team is. What do you love about your job most and what drives you nuts? Uh, I love the creativity in it as it relates to the four Ps. So when we think of creativity in CMO world, it's usually, you know, advertising and things that people more usually associate with creativity. Creativity in me is, is, taking all those 4P ingredients and cooking them into a nice dish, uh, more like a chef, right? And, and that is really fulfilling and fun. Um, I, I love that. And I love it about this job because it's, it's, a high, it's a high purpose-driven opportunity and I have a lot of ingredients with my teams to be able to cook those possibilities and bring them to life. And so far, so good. The, the, the market and the consumers responding to us. So that, that couldn't feel better. Uh, what I hate, I don't know that I hate, I don't really hate too much on stuff. Um, you know, I don't love administrative <laughs> like anybody else. Um, I, I'm, I'm not good at expense reports. I'm not good at, you know, getting, um, you know, checking certain boxes. And I really look for help with that stuff because it is just not the way that I'm typically built. So you know how you're wired. Yeah. And I need help with that stuff. So I I find people that are, you know, a lot better at it than I am and, and help me keep on track and, you know, and get, get the thing done on time and, and high quality, but I'm not built for, for that kind of stuff. We've touched on brand purpose a few times already. You've talked about mowing, Mm -hmm. getting more energy from an expanded view of the business and a, and a bigger brand purpose. Talk a little bit about this concept at fortune brands more broadly. Mm -hmm. Is it something that all of your brands are working. I mean, how do how do they do it? Right. Um, uh, is it appropriate for all brands? So, talk to us a little bit about the state of purpose yeah. at Fortune Brands. Well, the uh, the CEO of Fortune Brands is a guy named Nick Fink, and Nick is a guy who hired me. And um, when we were interviewing, I I remember it very well, um, and I told him straight out that I was not interested in in joining a plumbing company. Um. And I told the search firm I wasn't interested in joining a plumbing company. But as I thought about it, and I, I was like, you know, but water is interesting to me. And then he and I had this great discussion around that concept. Like, you know, water experiences could be huge and that could be transformed. He said he wanted to transform the brands and the business and maybe the industry. So he had high ambition and he was looking for someone to maybe help him do that. Um, so he's now the guy at the top of the house looking over all the brands, all the businesses. And that is his, his natural, I think, focus is to look for opportunities to drive the business, obviously, but also to you know, get competitive advantage through transformation. So while I think we've started more so on the, on the uh, Global Plumbing Group, which, which I work on, um, that same mentality is, is being applied into other places uh, inside Fortune Brands as well and pretty aggressively. They're very different challenges. You know, Master Lock has a totally different challenge than, you know, the cabinets business, um, which is different from outdoor living. You know, it's, it's just different channel challenges, different competitors. Um, th- there's no sort of one brand that kind of goes through all that and makes it all whole. Um, so it, it, there are various stages of that type of progress, but it, but it's exciting. And there are, there's lots of under leveraged opportunity across all those businesses. How do you see brand purpose evolving in our industry? I mean, it is the thing now. Yeah. I mean, I think that the challenge is, of course, it just becomes a cliche that no one, you know, knows <laughs> what we're talking about anymore. Um, just another shiny object that we follow for a while and then we kind of forget about it. Uh, I think it's so fundamental to a successful business, uh, a successful, sustainable business, even perhaps more importantly. And um, I think the challenge with it is not just to claim that you should have one, 
um, and, you know, do the Simon Sinek three circles or whatever they're, you know, whatever exercise you're going to go through and then put it on a wall and say, hey, there's the purpose, but you don't activate it in the business. And you got to activate it across the entire business. And that's hard work. And that's got to come from every level of the organization. It can't just be a very fine exercise that you do in an offsite somewhere and, and then, you know, put it on business cards. I mean, it's really got to come through. So as an example of that, for Moen, I just came from the sales conference and the sales team on their own decided to um, create an award for, you know, salesperson. And they called it the uh, 212 degree award. And why 212? Well, because that's the one degree that allows water to boil once you go from 211 to 212. So they took this sort of water focus that we're, you know, centering the purpose on and decided to turn it into an award for the salespeople nice. about that extra level of energy that you need to have to be a great salesperson and, and sort of framed it within our, our purpose. So it's a very small tactical example, but it's the kind of thing that you need to bring across the organization all the way through and reinforce even in small ways so people don't ever forget it. And it's not just a very fine exercise. I think that's the challenge with brand purpose in, in the industries right now. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. This is a great discussion, Mark Hans, and we're going to have to close it in a little, in a few minutes. And I like to end these discussions with some thoughts about leadership okay. and get some of your lessons and ask a few silly questions. Good. Get your, and, I'm waiting for the silly and questions. And the, the first silly one is, you probably know more about showers <laughs> than anyone in the world. So what are some interesting <laughs> insights about people and showers that our listeners may not be aware of? Oh, man. That's a good one, Jim. Um well, are you a one shower a day kind of guy? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm only one, one shower a day kind of yeah. guy. Then there's lots of people that are one shower a week types of people. There, there's lots of people who have a very different. I've um, met some of them in the yeah. subway. Well, no, it, it's like some people are very, very ecologically uh, motivated, yeah. and and they really don't think, and and also for health reasons like the oils in your skin. Another thing that they just really don't believe in in a daily shower, and it's bad for them for various reasons. Other people take three showers a day, um, and and this is part of their you know their their me time, uh, their their way of kind of blocking out the rest of the world. There's no iPhone in your shower. Uh, it's it's sort of a Zen moment. Um, matter of fact, we, we just launched, we're launching another pro, uh, product as well. It's a uh, Moen shower with this uh, brand called Inley and Inley makes essential oils. And so we've designed, designed this kind of Keurig shower where you can take these capsules of essential oils and plug them into your shower head and have, uh, you know, sort of a, you know, a lavender shower, uh, and, and really enjoy that experience even more so than maybe you would have normally. So we want to enhance those experiences. We want you to love. Is that on the market now? Uh, we're launching it in a couple months. Um, and it's, uh, it's a way of us, you know, striking that balance between, Hey, I want to have a great shower experience. I also care about the environment, um, you know, and how do we get that, those two things uh, going together? Because there are so many different needs out there, but it's a lot easier to get people to conserve water. Uh, if that's your goal, which is one of our goals, if you also give them a great experience at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what we're doing. What's the average time of a shower these days? Uh, it's about eight minutes. Um, you know, not, not in my home. Uh, I have two daughters, so those are longer. Longer showers, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but on, on, in general, it's about eight minutes. Or some people are just like, you know, hey, get in, get out. It's it's pure function. Other people, it's luxuriation and and uh, and escape. What's your go-to soap? I'm going to have to ask oh this. Oh, my God, this is a P&G question. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't think I can, I don't you think know, I can sure. say that. I'm going to, I'm going to, it is not old no. spice. I'm going to plead the fifth. All right. Very good. Best <laughs> boss you've ever had. Oh man. That is a terrible question. I know. That's a terrible question. I, I've had so many great bosses. I've been super fortunate to have had the most supportive and, and challenging at times, uh, bosses that have taught, I've, I've learned so much from all of them and, and, um, still still do and have so many good relationships with them still, which is amazing. You know, like I still talk to so many of my old bosses. Um, 
I'm going to say my, my, my first two best bosses or the, the best ones I have with my two first bosses, uh, Scott Remy and, J- and John Zorowski. And, um, cause they, it was DDB and they really taught me how to, you know, embrace the creativity in an agency environment or in a business environment, but also to keep it about business at the same time. And that's a tough thing. You, you think, oh, this agency, we're just going to have fun and we're going to do crazy things. And and they were very, they, they struck that balance right away from like day one to help me understand, you know, it, it's really about both these things in, in appropriate tension and how do you do that in the right way. They taught me a lot about how to work with others in creative environments that I really wasn't prepared for. Um, and, um, you know, I had a couple sit downs with me <laughs> here and there and, and I learned so much. So I think a lot of times that sort of early beginner's mind thing, uh, if you get it right that first year or two, it, it sets you on a really good course if, if you're lucky enough to get a couple of really good bosses. And in that case, I, I did. Your greatest strength as a leader? Uh, uh, challenge. Challenge uh, yourself, challenge your team. Challenge, challenge teams um, to, to reach beyond what they think they might be able to do and, and, and hopefully support them in that as well. Not just challenge them like, Hey, how come you don't do more, but Hey, have you thought about this? (laughs) Let's go all the way out to the craziest level. And then if it doesn't work, we can always work back from there. Um, you know, the, I, I randomly mentioned the Pope Francis thing, um, which I call our cross promotion with God in, uh, (laughs) in, uh, in uh so this uh, is pope uh, francis and harley davidson yeah we 110th anniversary in Good rome combo. Uh, doing a doing a anniversary celebration in europe first time ever and there's a um you know a, a heritage inside of riding and with harley davidson in particular called the blessing of the bikes so it's been going on for decades so a little you know group of people get together they're going to go for a ride they bring out a local religious figure they do a blessing of the bikes so hey we're in rome we've chosen to do this big big rally here we're going to do a blessing of the bikes. Who should we get? Well, I mean, do you, get a, do you get a cardinal good. or do you go all the way out and say, you know, why not the Pope? So in that case, it's, it, it's just an example of a crazy example of what's the most ridiculous um, version of this idea that we could have. Let's figure out if we can get there. If we can't get there, we'll be fine with the cardinal, but um, <laughs> or, or another local religious figure. But, but let's, let's see if we can get all the way out, out to here. And uh, the team just did an amazing job, not only negotiating with the Vatican, which they did uh, with Pope Benedict, but then for the first time in 600 whatever years, they decided to switch popes on us. So we had to renegotiate with the Pope Francis administration. I should because we yeah, were part it. of it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then sure enough, uh, in uh, in our rally in Rome, uh, Pope Francis did a blessing of the bikes for us with a thousand of our riders. He mentioned Harley Davidson in his Sunday Mass uh, by name. Um, Can't buy that. Yeah, it was it was truly truly amazing. So, what was his blessing? Uh, it, it was literally coming through. We had uh, a thousand of our riders or, or so lined up on either side of the road, right off of uh, St. Peter's Square. So he came through, kind of in the Pope Mobile, open, and came through and and blessed the bikes. You know, as he was You're wearing a black leather jacket. He he was not. I no. there are pictures of me with showing him a black leather jacket um, that were were was not intended to be a, a big PR thing. Uh, it was just a, what we thought was a private audience with the Pope, and we were telling him Harley stories. And, uh, but the, I'll tell you the most powerful PR organization in the world is the Vatican information service. And they brought their cameras and they took these pictures and I was not the highest ranking person in this, um, this reception line, but I was wearing black and I was showing him a jacket and he, a black jacket and he was wearing white. So it was the perfect, you know, uh, contrast of devil and, and So God. what was your meeting like with the Pope? <laughs> Uh, it was fat. He's he's an incredible guy. I mean, not that I know him that well, but um, he's really deeply curious. Um, he's just a, an amazingly curious person. I think on every level, who who really wants to know uh, what's this about and what are you about, and um, you have to do it through a translator. Um, and uh, and yet, it, it I, I found him to be way more attentive and interesting in anything we were talking about when he's got to be besieged with stuff every day. But his his focus was really incredible. And, um, and his people were great and, and our riders loved it. And it was really a lot of fun. It's funny. People say the same thing about Mr. Rogers. When you're, when you were with him, mm. you were the only person in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And the incredible focus and engagement in the yeah. moment. Well, I think you there's something about that. that. Yeah. And the curiosity, uh, um, so which I think is also a good, good trait. What are you working on as a leader? Uh, listening. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of things that I think that we need to be doing. I'm, I do get anxious around, Hey, we're not making enough progress fast enough. Uh, I do have a bias for, for action. 
Um, but you need to you need to take a step back and you need to listen and listening. It's just like we were just talking about Pope Francis. You know, at some point you you got to turn it the other way and and be a better listener than a talker. Um, that that's fuel for creativity. It's fuel for making better decisions. It's fuel for also having better team dynamics and respecting people. And so I feel like I'm always going to be working on that um, because my mind's constantly thinking about Moving. the next thing we have to do. And and you got to slow it down and, and let people, uh, you know, tell you things they need to tell you. Brands that you really admire now that inspire you? Tesla. Uh, I, I, it might be a kind of a cliche answer, but um, man, am I inspired by that company. And as I said earlier, just that tension of I, I can do this and I can do this. <laughs> I can, do you drive one? I do. I, I'm on my second. I, I bought my first one in 2013. So I went all in and, um, and spent more money than, than we were comfortable with. But I really believed in it, really believed in it and still believe in it. It's been an amazing experience as a consumer, amazing um, driving experience. Um, just feels just there's an epiphany around it all the time and and the fact they just keep making it better and better and and it feels like there's no compromises with these experiences um and uh and then their ambition is, is just fantastic and inspirational as well and and you can extend that out you know through elon musk into spacex and all those other things but as it relates to a brand and a business it, is there another brand that you would really miss if it went away Apple would be another answer. Um, and and we, I've been on Apple since the 80s. My dad uh, had a company that made software in the 80s uh, for the Apple III and the Apple Lisa. And I actually oh, went to Comdex 1984 and met Guy Kawasaki at that time. And hey, look, there's Steve Jobs. <laughs> I mean, it was incredible. It, I was 18 years old. So it was quite, quite the impression. Um, uh, I didn't really pick up on the, you know, if I'd been the really smart, of the moment, <laughs> if yeah. I'd been really smart, like, hey your, guys, you know, you, you your looking your for a, a young, ambitious 18 year old yeah, yeah. <laughs> or just, you know, the idea I could have done something different, but, um, it was a great experience. So I've always been an Apple person. Do you have any habits that might be interesting for our listeners about how you stay happy, healthy, energetic, fully engaged? Any rituals? This is you so have? hard. This is so hard. And and when you're trying to you know be good at home as well, that 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 tension. And you mentioned travel before. You know, balancing these things is really tough, and it does have an impact on your family. That that I have been, you know, not always as present to as I wish I would have, and and now hopefully more so. Um, but I think it's just about having priorities. If if you get your priorities sort of down, you can find ways to make the right balance choices. Um, but if you don't have those priorities and if you're not including your home life in those priorities, then it's it's sort of easy to let those things slip. So I've been much more intentional in the last several years with what are the things we're trying to achieve at home and, um, and also what are we trying to achieve at work so that I can uh, do a better job of kind of in flow, trying to figure out how to keep those, those things together and, and not miss, um, you know, those opportunities when they show themselves. Is there a book, movie, series, podcast, album, that's had a major impact on you lately. Uh, oh, lately? Yeah. Or or through time. Why not? Um, well, my favorite book is 1984, and, and it scares me now with all that we're going through, so I won't get into that. I was that, in my hotel but, room last night. But man, oh man, is that, I mean, if you reread that book, it's 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 frightening to read. But it, it had a huge impact on me when I when I first read it. It was one of those alternate history things that has always in, uh, you know excited me because I think it goes back to hey, if there are such things as alternate histories, that means you can have an impact on history. You could change things through your own initiatives. You know, it's possible that you could have an impact on something. Um, and so I've also been um, pretty engaged with Man in the High Castle uh, on Amazon. Um, great stories, you know, well-produced. Uh, again, alternate histories. Um, I like Black Mirror. Um, kind of freaky, but but fun. And The uh, Watchmen? Did you watch that? Uh, I, I have not caught up to that yet, but yes, that's that on too. my list. Yeah, uh, I like sci-fi and all that. But um, yeah, so those those have been some some influences. Who else would you like to listen to on the CMO podcast? An excellent question. Also anticipated this one. So I think maybe a couple that you wouldn't have thought of. Um, there's a guy named Brandon Snow. He's the chief revenue officer at Activision Blizzard. And they're doing really amazing things with Overwatch League and Call of Duty League and, you know, the, this whole esports phenomenon. And and I think you'd find him really interesting. And he and I used to work together at DDB Chicago. Um 
Uh, do you know Phil, Phil Clement? He was the CMO at Aon and now he's a CMO at Johnson Controls. But he was responsible for the whole Manchester United um, partnership with, with Aon that really put Aon on the map. And he's a really terrific guy, really insightful and, and plugged in on a lot of levels. Um, and then maybe a real wild card, because you've mentioned Harley Davidson a lot. I think it'd be worthwhile for you to maybe have a non-marketing person like a CFO on the show and talk about the lens of marketing through the CFO's eyes. And a guy that I work with at Harley named John Olin, he's a really excellent, excellent CFO. He also used to work for Kraft um, prior to Harley. So he's got a lot of brand experience, at least having been around it. And, I love um, that idea. and it might give you kind of a, a fresh perspective on the CMO role through, through the lens of, I think, is the most important relationship in the C-suite is between the CMO and the CFO. Um, because, you know, if you don't, if those two don't work together well, it, it's going to be hard to get after the growth that you need for the business. We will find a CFO. There Thank you, you Mark Hans. <laughs> yeah, really, this is wonderful. Jim. Fabulous yeah. conversation. Thank you. Great questions. Let's keep it going yeah. offline. Uh, we will. I, I wish you'd put a shirt on though. I, <laughs> I, I, this has been uncomfortable. This has been uncomfortable. <laughs> All the shower discussion. But anyway, thank you. No, it was fun. All right. It's great. That was my conversation with Mark Hans Richer. I loved everything about this chat, but what I loved as a marketer were his lessons about reviving legacy brands. He's worked on a bunch of them. He has a good model, and it was so, so, so interesting to listen to him, and the lessons are good for every marketer. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.